0: Welcome back,
1: everybody. Tim and I still distanced. Tim, how are you out there?
2: Well, you know, uh, it's getting toasty out here in Pasadena as, as we move into the summer. So um, uh, I suppose that's actually a good thing. Um, uh, you know, they say they say it is anyway. But but things are, you know, things are okay. Uh, numbers in Los Angeles County are not great. So we have to sort of like admit that. It's kind of funny because I was sort of cocky at the beginning of all of this about how great we were doing in the state of California and Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know what eventually this thing is simply going to touch everywhere and everywhere is simply going to have to get it under control on, on their own that's all there is to it Nobody, nobody's going to escape it whole and complete Not no
1: yet. no I mean it's it's a uh, you know we're, we're dealing with the uh, the school thing now what what kind of school uh, thing is going to happen I have a feeling I'm an optimist I have a feeling that uh, in about four weeks time things will look uh, a whole lot better but that is, uh, that's just, uh that's just my my optimistic streak. Uh, on another note, we've lost a couple of Giants just uh, in the last, uh, in the last week or two. Uh, most recently, Ennio Morricone, and then just days before that, Carl Reiner. Um, you know, I feel bad, I feel really badly for Mel Brooks, because the, literally the day before Carl died, they were watching Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune together
2: yeah it's what they did. They sort of became each other's wives as uh yeah. you know and Bancroft uh, a couple of years ago. I think Carl lost his wife uh back in 2016 if I recall yeah. correctly. um uh and uh you know they, 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 these are beverly hills boys and uh and they they hung out together and did dinner and they just sort of you know so yeah um um out of that sit season, uh your show of shows yeah sit season uh I think we still got uh well, we got Mel, uh and we still got Woody still got Woody. Yeah. Uh, uh, Neil
1: Simon. We still Neil, got Neil Simon. Neil. Neil, Neil, Neil. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, you know, the, and these guys get a little long in the tooth, but, you know, they hung in there. They hung in there real. They hung in there real good.
1: Speaking of Sid Caesar, you know, I was just watching. Uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world on Criterion Channel the other day. And uh, that, you know, it's part of their they, they have it running as part of the um, a series on Criterion Channel of uh, films with Saul Bass credit sequences. Oh, yeah. Notwithstanding how damn funny that movie is, that really is one of the all-time great opening animated title sequences. Saul Bass just was was a master. At a time when there was no CG, by the way.
2: Yeah, yeah. All of the, all, all of that design, all of those moving around graphics and animation so done good. on film. Yeah. Uh, using all of those techniques, just extraordinary. Typography, all of it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So and, sad. Uh, and Ineo. What's your favorite your
1: Moroccani score?
2: Oh... I I mean I'm literally looking at them right here and every time I, I get ready to say one another one pops up I my know mind. look uh, for that matter I, I you know I still dig the stuff from the uh, from the um, from way back in the day I'm going to I'm I'm going to go all the way back and just be obvious although that love story score <laughs> which, I'm so, which is corny I know but uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to the Westerns and, and, and just, just go with those spaghetti Westerns and, what, you know, mm. those sort of obvious scores. I, upon a time in the West
1: for me is, is, um, is kind of the peak that I just, I cry whenever I hear that music, I cry, yeah. I cry. Yeah. Well, and then, uh, Oscars, we should talk about Oscars are delayed, uh, for those that haven't followed up, they're pushing the Oscars to, what is it, April now?
0: April yeah, of next yeah.
1: year, and films get to qualify for 2020 uh, if they are released as late as, I think, February or even, uh, I think, late February of 2021. So they, they're trying to sort of give a little more space for things to get into theaters. We'll see how it's, that works.
2: It's, um, yeah, because, look, uh, a, 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 a whole lot of films that were meant to be in theaters uh, and probably had some sort of Oscar uh, you know, pretensions uh, have already been released on streaming services, a good, a good many of them Disney films. So you know, um, in the animation category particularly, you know, uh, so uh, Universal had to. Tr- so it, it'll, it'll be difficult because you know the fact of the matter is a great many of, of the films that will be considered for Academy Awards this year will be films that never played in a movie theater. Uh, ironic, given uh, I guess it was two or three uh, Oscar seasons ago, uh, did, you know, part members of the Academy, Steven Spielberg uh, <laughs> was very specifically trying to make sure that films that did not play in movie theaters. Uh, did not get consideration um, for Academy Awards. And certainly films that, that had that sort of combination, Netflixy uh day and date sort of release thing that was going on there for yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah. And they also, obviously, all of that has gone out the window. Um, and And we will be considering films that have only... Um, ever been seen uh, on on small screens? That's uh, going to be the necessary thing. And
1: and least, I'm still sure. not I'm still not sure how they're going to handle that. I'm not sure how we are going to handle it for the LA Film Critics. I'm assuming that we're going to have our voting meeting then next year as well. That's not going to happen in December. Yeah. Uh, but you know now there are. I mean, you know what it's been like on Film Week. It's been chaos. Yeah. I mean, I mean, where where whereas you know we would cover say ten out of, say, maybe 18 to 20 films releasing theatrically each week, which is a huge number, yeah. uh, now we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, 30 films releasing to VOD each week, and we're still finding out, like, 5 to 10 new films are just popping up on the radar in the last few days. How do you call that out for awards consideration?
2: I don't know. Yeah, and, and it's different, look, I, it's wonderful, actually, for a great many of those films, in terms of film week. Um, that we would have never, ever talked about because they simply did not um, uh, go to movie theaters. That was, that was the central set of criteria for film week. Film had to be in a movie theater someplace we were in, in, if we were going to talk about them. Although we, we had gotten a little bit loose about that uh, even before we went into quarantine and pandemic. We would talk about day and date films on yeah. um, So a little bit looser than that. And sometimes if a film was a very, very significant film uh, and it was releasing on Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, and it weren't going to be in a theater. It seems to me that occasionally we would talk about those films too. Yeah. Sometimes we would we, we do them in the sort of addendum part of the show. But now all of that is simply part of the show. And I got I to gotta tell you, some of the films that we've talked about on Film Week, that I have anyway, that, that I know would have never been in the movie theater, have been films that I've been very glad to talk about on Film Week. Yeah. And to make sure that people knew about them and got a chance to go see them. And I know that talking about some of those movies has really given those little bitty films a hell of a boost. Yeah, A hell of a boost. Film Week reaches eight hundred and fifty thousand people um, uh, per airing, I guess you would call it. So really, yeah, we hit that many. Yeah. Oh yeah. no! The, oh, holy you know, cow! The, you know, the numbers have gone insane, and of course, uh, you know, um, well, it's complicated. You know, it airs airs on Friday. It used to be live on Friday, then aired again on Saturday. But nevertheless, um, the audience that looks that listens to Film Week on Saturday is is is, is mainly a different audience that listened to it on that Friday. The people who heard it Friday already heard yeah, it. Yeah. That means if you're picking up another 800, you're picking up a, a, a discreet around 800 and some odd thousand people, that's a lot of people to have your little independent film that you made for a million bucks or whatever, uh, you know, served up to. Yeah. So for you or I on any, or any of the, the critics on the show to say, this little bitty movie is really, really good and you can watch it at limleys.com. Yeah. Or, or you know, they, they they stream all over the place now. Right. I know that this has made a difference uh, in the in the uh, in the lives of those independent filmmakers and I frankly kind of like it. I kind of right. like the idea of 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 us pouring our clout into those films as opposed to, you know, the top 5 big releases. Oh. I, I I'm
1: I'm I'm just freaked out that 800,000 people listen to us on each of those shows. Um I I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that now. I was thinking it was uh, a, l- a lot more intimate than that. Holy cow. Okay, yeah. well, and then the uh, last little bit of news, uh, Gone with the Wind is back on HBO Max. Yeah. Uh, as well, promised, with well, a little, so little, little, little introduction from uh, Professor Jacqueline Stewart uh, from the uh, University of Chicago, who does host stuff on TCM. She hosts the uh, Silent Sunday Nights, and she does a little intro on it. I have not seen it. But but you know, I uh I, I and, and you and I talk about this often. Context is everything. Don't ban anything, just give it a context. Yeah. And and uh and and I do think Gone with the Wind deserves context. But it it you know, people people I think uh dogpiled it a little too quickly initially. if you know the history of Gone with the Wind, forget about the book, which has its own reputation. You know, David o. Selznick – there's a you can go into the Selznick, I forget which library has it, but you can go online and you can read all of this. And and there 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 is a collection of letters where Selznick went back and forth with the NAACP and and invited them to please give me your comments on the script because as a Jew and in light of what's happening to Jews in Europe right now. Nineteen thirty nine. He said, the last thing that I want to do as a as a persecuted member of a persecuted minority is contribute to something that would further that. So please. And he worked with the NAACP. Is the film dated? Yes, it is. But in the context of the time, Selznick bent over backwards to to make that film something of a progressive milestone at that time. We may not see it so today, but in the context of his time, you know, that's why context, context does matter.
2: Well, adding to that context, you know, um, uh, back when uh, there were a number of of, of black actresses uh, in that film, Butterfly McQueen, uh, who won the Academy Award? um, Oh, Hattie. Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel McDaniel won the Academy Award. Um, At that particular time, for one thing, Hattie McDaniel, who was a Los Angeles native and lived, uh, you know, for years uh, uh, down in – uh, the, the sort of black neighborhoods, Compton, uh, uh, eventually uh, what they call the Black Beverly Hills, Baldwin Park. Um, these people were venerated in the black community. Yeah. No one looked at Hattie McDaniel uh, with uh, as as being someone who had contributed to some sort of uh degradation of the black community. We loved that she won that Academy Award. I say we. I wasn't born, but but it's. It, uh, and her speech, let's be honest, she was segregated in in the at the dinner the too. Act, she the had actual this, dinner, yeah. the actual dinner,
1: and that was almost a, I think a law a legal thing. You couldn't you had to do that by law in California. It wasn't the Academy's choice, but uh she uh she gave one of the, what is still one of the most beautiful acceptance speeches of all time.
2: Exquisite. And yeah. and so, you know, we need to remember that. You know, the nineteen thirties we're not the 1960s. By the time you get to the 1960s and you have Sidney Poitier walking around, uh, you know, uh, guess who's coming to dinner or something yeah, like that, all yeah. that kind of stuff. The black panthers are rolling around out there. You have this whole sort of different dynamic going yeah. on. Um, uh, with that, but in the 1930s, late 30s, early 40s, when she won that Academy Award, she was venerated. Um, um, and uh, was and we were very, very happy about that. Um, um, uh, so, you know, uh, context is absolutely everything. I haven't seen the forward. I haven't either. Like, I haven't like, either. Heard, I heard a bit of it on NPR, you know, they did the story on NPR, and, and, and some of it was there, and of course, I know her very well. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that context makes all the difference in the world, um, uh, and, and, and I think that it makes that film a teachable film again. Now this movie becomes a teachable movie again, and we don't have to worry about it yeah. uh, sitting out there. Out of context, all by itself. So good, good on, good on. What's that? Warner Brothers? Was that
1: Warner? Yeah, it's Warner, AT and T, Time Warner, HBO Max. Let's put them yeah. all in there. Uh, <laughs> I, I got I, and and on. Before we move on to movies, as long as you brought up Butterfly McQueen, uh, and I and you know we're losing a lot of these um, these marketing brands too, which which are, are kind of reevaluating a lot of things. I don't want to get into all that necessarily. Mrs. Butterworths was the one where everybody just said Mrs. Butterworths. Why is Mrs. Butterworth's racist? But but I got a little detail. I bet you probably don't know. Nah. The the, the body of Mrs. Butterworth, that shape, the silhouette of Mrs. Butterworth's, do you know whose body that is? No. Butterfly McQueen.
2: Get out of here. She was so felt. So, so Butter,
1: the- Butterfly McQueen, right after Gone with the Wind, modeled for the silhouette that became Mrs. Butterworth's.
2: That, that, that's an absolutely extraordinary thing. Yes. That, that's a complicated thing for me. It, again, context being everything. So you look at that Mrs. Butterworth bottle. That's just the Aunt yeah. Jemima yeah. Uh, bottle. Uh, and uh, black folks look at that bottle, and we see two things going on. First of all, most folks see uh, the visage of someone who probably existed in their own family. Miss uh, Aunt Jemima looks just like my mother's mother, yeah. who we call Big Mama. Yeah. Literally looks just big-breasted, big woman tall and strong, and everybody loved her. Uh, so it, it was always sort of a, a complicated thing uh, to look at that bottle and understand uh, a message that might be being sent with that bottle, while at the same time knowing that, that there are human beings in all of our black families who look just like that. And I don't want to hate on that visage. It looks like my grandmother. Yeah. Now, the, the context in which it's being presented to me in, in terms of the, of the syrup, that's something that I can, I can take issue with. But the actual physical uh, presentation itself, as you say, Butterfly McQueen, My Big Mama. Uh, the Big Mama, and what was the, I think the name of the movie was Big Mama. Uh, the, who was that that used to play Big Mama? Was that Martin Lawrence or Jamie Foxx? Uh,
0: uh, you know uh Martin mama? Lawrence, Martin Lawrence.
2: It was Martin Lawrence. Yeah. Two, two, three of those movies, right? Back, yep. back in the 90s, you yep. know? Big, and that Big Mama, looked like Big Mom, Tyler Perry's uh, Madea, who more or less, uh, you know, is a Big Mama type, uh, so. You know, it, it, a complicated sort of a thing that, that that at least I've always had to deal with. I, I I refuse to hate on that image. That image exists in in too much of my family and too many of the uh, African-American families that I know. But the context is one uh, that had to be addressed. Now, how they're gonna out ultimately do this, look, uh, I just wanna see some skinny, <laughs> some skinny <pope> yeah. of <laughs> syrup. Aside from being an oxymoron, <laughs> It, uh, it, it would be it would be hating on that image and i don't want to do that
1: i uh, well i'm going to take this opportunity to go sideways and and recommend a product that unlike those is not necessarily using the 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 blackface as a marketing ploy uh i only use Stubbs barbecue sauce i don't know if you've ever seen it but Stubbs barbecue <laughs> sauce Stubbs barbecue sauce has has black man with 10 gallon hat on the front of it Yes. And that is because C.B. Stubblefield is the man who created it. He was a mess sergeant in the Korean War, and he perfected a barbecue sauce, and he marketed it. And uh, he's uh, he is famous for for being a, a good old Texas, uh, Texas cook. He's, he's a Texas boy, and he, he, he gave us some great barbecue sauce. And I make burgers with that, and they are to die for. So uh, when you see Stubbs' barbecue sauce, I want you to buy it, people, because yeah, it, it is the absolutely. best. It is the best. Nothing yeah. like it. Let's let's get in. I got a whole bunch of Kinos here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to plow through right off the top. Kino just Kino is one company that has just not let their foot off the gas. They uh, amid all of this pandemic stuff, Kino just continues to pump out title after title after title of classic movie, and there's so so much of it. So I'm gonna try to give you a good a good dose of it right now, right off the top. Anthony Quinn uh, in Caravans. Also with Christopher Lee and Joseph Cotton shows up in this. This is from 1978, kind of a late Anthony Quinn uh, period film. We we got movies all through the 70s that all kind of felt like they belonged in the in the 1960s, and uh, and this is one of them. This has a really interesting audio commentary by film historian Evgeny Mlodik. And uh, who who is able to speak to the Middle Eastern background of of the story and and you know how it takes place in 1948 and the, uh, the a lot of a lot of kind of colonial politics going on with a lot of tribal politics and all of this stuff um, it gets a little far fetched you know there's a there's a CIA angle to it and it's a uh, it it does depict nomadic tribes of Central Asia in a in a somewhat uh, I don't want to say patronizing, but almost, it's almost a patronizing light. Nonetheless, the performances are really good. We talked about context earlier. you got to remember this is 1978, and uh, Anthony Quinn is terrific in it. Michael Sarrazin's also in it. Jennifer O'Neill is a little bit miscast, but, uh, you know, um, it, it is a fun film. It is based on a, a James Michener novel I have never read, so I can't speak to how faithful it is to the novel. Uh, kind of in this, in a similar vein, also from the nineteen seventies, is the Last Valley. Now, this is uh, a this is a James Clavell thing, but not just uh, like based on a novel by James Clavell. James Clavell wrote, produced, and directed this. A lot of people don't realize that wow. the guy who wrote Shogun and Taipan and all that stuff also made some movies. He did King Rat. Uh, and this is one of them. And you know what? James Clavel could pretty much, by 1971, he was a big enough name that he could pretty much do whatever he wanted to. He was one of the biggest novelists of all time at that point. Yeah.
2: And, and the last. Got Michael Caine and Omar Sharif. That's
1: it. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're 1971, they are still big names. Got an amazing score by John Barry. I mean, a beautiful, beautiful John Barry score that is really one of his very, very best. And um, it, it, this basically, uh, it, it's funny how, how Omar Sharif always shows up in stuff that he's just ethnically not at all suited for. It. You, you, <laughs> he's you a, totally buy he's him.
2: a German village.
1: He's, like, <laughs> German, he's playing Germans and Russians. You know, at a certain point when you're Omar Sharif, it's like, <laughs> screw it, man. I'm going to play whatever the hell I want to play. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it takes place in 17th century Germany, and it's about the Thirty Years' War. And uh, it, it's melodramatic, but it's big and sweeping, and it's really uh, quite an enjoyable watch. It's not too long. It's 125 minutes, which is a lot shorter than most James Clavell adaptations. Uh,
2: shorter than most of his books. For
1: that. Uh, <laughs> it took me like a year and a half to read Shogun. Uh, and then we've got Murder by Decree, uh, one of the, one of the more popular of the Sherlock Holmes adaptations of the time. This is also again 1970s, 1979, um, with a, a, a rather amazing performance by Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes and James Mason as Watson. Maybe the most famous Holmes and Watson tandem I think we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, both actors, you know, Oscar nominees and and winners in their own right. Um, and, uh, you know, what? I, I really th- still think this film holds up. I think it's really, really oh, yeah. fun.
2: It's one of the first times we see, uh, we see uh, Watson not be played as a sort of buffoon. Um, That's it. Uh, yeah, you know, James Mason was not going to do that. Uh,
1: he, has something to, he has something to contribute. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, who directed this? Bob Clark. Oh, wow. Wow. Bob. Clark.
1: Porky's Bob Clark. Uh, Christmas Story Bob Clark. Very, very versatile man. Uh, and that also has an audio commentary. Uh, by Bob Clark, which was recorded, obviously, before he passed, and another commentary by uh, historians Howard Berger and Steve Mitchell, which is also very, very good. Uh, that We got now in a little bit of an exploitation thing. I was going to set this with the exploitation titles, but I think it deserves mention on its own, uh, because it's, it's, got, it's not exploitation. It's got a lot of mainstream people in it. So, Go-Go Mania directed by Frederick Good, who is otherwise known for next to nothing. This is from 1965. It's just a quick blast of music from the mid-1960s. It's got the Beatles in it. It's got go-go dancers. It's got funky clothes. It's got uh, Herman's Hermits and the Nashville Teens and Matt Monroe. And it's just, you know what, that's all you need to know. If you love go-go music, and I love go-go music, I just (laughs) want everyone to know that. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite a fun little, uh, little blast from the period. Um, another, uh, kind of, uh, it's not a Sherlock Holmes movie, but it has qualities of, it's like a, it's like a, 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 Sherlock Holmes-ish thing meets the, uh, meets, uh, uh, Hammer is, uh, the, the Flesh and the Fiends, which is, uh, Peter Cushing in one of his hammier roles, but still very, very compelling. This is from 1960. And it was made by Valiant Films, not Hammer, so it feels a little hammery, it feels a little um Victorian Sherlock Holmesy. And uh it's it's kind of between a mystery and a thriller and a horror film. Uh it's uh it's scary. It takes place in Edinburgh in eighteen twenty seven and um it's kind of Frankensteiny. I I don't want to tell you exactly what it's doing, but uh, Peter Cushing plays a surgeon who um, has some unorthodox and unethical practices. Let's just say that. And um, it involves the characters of Burke and Hare, which, you know, you, you, I'm sure everybody knows they're the famous body snatchers. And it's really quite clever the way it kind of weaves a lot of this stuff together. So... Uh, If you like Hammer films, I think you'll enjoy it. Tim Lucas does the commentary here, also has uh, an alternate cut of the film that was known as Mania, which is not very good, but it's worth checking out. Uh, Let's see, uh, a few other things here. Spaced Invaders uh, is a thoroughly enjoyable 1990 film that is a throwback to 1950s films. I really enjoyed this at the time. I remember when this came out. I may have reviewed this actually. This might have been one of the first things I actually reviewed, Tim, when we were <laughs> when we were both uh, kicking around those early days. Uh, this was a touchstone release, and uh, co-written and uh, directed by Patrick Reed Johnson, and uh, it, it's really quite fun. It's just a space invasion, alien invasion movie, as you would expect from uh, like the nineteen fifties. Borrows a lot from War of the Worlds, which has kind of a cool little meta thing in it, and it's kitschy, but it's not. T- camp, and it f- strikes a real good middle line. It's got a ton of interviews and featurettes on it about the effects and uh, how they put the film together. And it's it's really really this is loaded with special features, and it's nice that this has kind of come back on the uh, on the on the radar again. Uh, Douglas Barr and Ariana Richards star in it. It's really quite a lot of fun. Mm. You know, who just turned uh, eighty years old, Tim? Who? Ringo Starr. Get out of here. Ringo is eighty. Wow. And Ringo is forever my favorite Beatle because he made Caveman. Now, I'm not talking about Caveman. I'm talking about another Ringo movie here. Ringo and David Essex and Keith Moon in That'll Be the Day. Uh, This was made in 1973. It's kind of a weird little cult movie directed by Claude uh, Hwatham. And... uh, It ages kind of curiously. You know, David Essex is really... uh, Most people have forgotten who David Essex was. He was originally in Stardust. And he's kind of a a lost figure. But um, he's the lead here. And uh, Ringo Starr is his buddy. And they wind up kind of going off on this hedonistic spree. And uh, it takes a few interesting twists and turns and means to be a commentary on sort of rock and roll from the 1950s and uh, with an eye towards the morality of the 1960s. And then you got just a, a ton of great soundtrack uh, songs on it. Little Richard and Frankie Lyman and Richie Valens and Del Shannon and Jerry Lee Lewis and the Everly Brothers, and it's great. And, uh, you know, Keith Moon is in it as well, who a lot of people remember as the late uh, drummer for The Who, but it's a nice little time capsule. Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills uh, oh, by I
2: love that movie, yeah. Paul Bartell.
1: The late Paul Bartel uh, threw a lot of cult figures in this. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. and Mary Warrenov and Ray Sharkey all show up. Uh, Jacqueline Bessette is just absolutely stunning. I just watched her again the other day in Bullet. Uh, Bullet was another thing I watched on the Criterion channel. Could I just take a detour and say Bullet is still a great, fabulous movie? No, it moves, baby. It moves. That is such a fabulous film. Uh, everything about Bullet is just so, so, so good. Um, anyway, uh, and she was so young in that. But anyway, this is from 1989, Jacqueline Bissett looking absolutely ageless. And, uh, Paul Bartel just takes a, you know, he takes a torch to the, the whole pretentious scene of, uh, of people in Beverly Hills in the 1980s and 90s. And, um... You know what? I, it's it's irreverent as all of Bartel's stuff is, but I think this might even be one of his very best films. It's certainly one oh, of his most mature easy, films.
2: Easy to put it right there. Yeah, that, that's probably one of the first films that I reviewed. Well, I, got it, I think it came out in '89, but it yeah, was, uh, yeah, it was it was bumping around here. Paul Mazursky shows up in the movie too. I love that. Uh, so let me do just a few more
1: here, and then we'll we'll catch on to something else. Um, you know, Mary Queen of Scots is a story that has been told uh, several times. I think the only one that actually works, not the most recent one that we had, but I think the original Mary Queen of Scots from 1971 is a very, very fine film. It it dates a little bit poorly. It's kind of, you know, um, uh, not the production value we would expect today, but it's still a good film, even if it's very theatrical, produced by Hal Wallace, who, of course, was uh, an old-timer, produced uh, Casablanca and worked at Warner Brothers back in the day. And uh, Hal Walls produced this right around the end of his career. It has wonderful performances from Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson in the leads. I mean, two just really extraordinary actresses. Patrick McGowan, Timothy Dalton, and Nigel Davenport round it out. The men play second fiddle here. Make no mistake whatsoever. Um, Ian Holm is also in this. A very young Ian Holm. It's a. It,
2: oh, and, that's, and, that's another one we lost
1: on. Oh, yeah, I know. So sad. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the late Nick Redman of Twilight Time contributes uh, along with John Burlingame to the uh, isolated music only track and commentary track. So uh, that's worth a a listen as well. So a, a famous story. The
2: 1971 film is still the best. Wild referred to that twenty eighteen thing with uh oh, Ronin yeah. who was who, Margot Robbie. I mean some good performances in that, but it was the conception yeah. uh, was an, an issue for me. I agree completely. Uh Ten Little
1: Indians, Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, one of the most influential of all time. This it was in also a nineteen eighty-nine film made by Canon. Menachem Golan oh. and Yoram Globus. Yeah. What a silly movie this is. Um, They took Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians and made an absolutely ridiculous movie out of it. It's not good, but yet it is immensely watchable because they put the weirdest cast together. This stars Herbert Lahm, Frank Stallone, and Brenda Vaccaro. (laughs) <laughs> where would you ever find those three people in a movie together it is absolutely yeah. weird and and just bizarre to to, to i mean brenda Vaccaro, frank stallone and herbert Lom. who thought frank stallone was going to be a star nobody oh. anyway uh so that's that's completely bananas there's nothing on that except a trailer and let's see i'll do two more here before we uh dive into some other stuff um more... No, here we go. I'm going to hold that one off. Uh, here, I'm going to just do, do th- these three. I'm going to go a little genre here. Uh, these three. They, as long as we're on some alien stuff. They came from beyond space, directed by the great cinematographer Freddie Francis, best known for doing perhaps The Elephant Man uh, for David Lynch. Freddie Francis, of course, was a director in his own right, did a lot of really great kind of um, uh, genre stuff in the UK, a lot of it uh, Hammer stuff. And for Embassy Pictures, which was a thing in the late 60s and early 70s, he made uh, They Came from Beyond Space, yeah. which, uh, which is basically just a, a ridiculous alien invasion movie uh, kind of masquerading as a, as, a, as a, I don't know, an exploitation sex film. Maybe, the other, maybe it's the other way around. I can't really tell. But, uh, you know, he, Freddie Francis has a way of making these kinds of films both funny and yet somehow strangely respectable. And it's the same thing here. I mean it's just like, you know, he, he did the Deadly Bees, if you ever saw that, and mm. uh and Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. I mean, this is kind of in that same vein, except it has aliens. And uh it's 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 completely bonkers and it's really fun and silly. Uh Let's Kill Uncle. Is a William Castle film. It's a William Castle film from 1966. If you know anything about William Castle, you know William Castle was just a marketing maven. The movies weren't very good, but he always had a gimmick to market them. And what a great title, "Let's Kill Uncle." Um, again, not a particularly great film. He uh, Castle produced and directed it. Uh, it you know, it's it's um, it's got a it's got a pretty good commentary on it with Cat Ellinger and Mike McPadden. But uh, really, ultimately, it, you, you got to kind of uh, suspend your disbelief in this a little bit. This is uh, about a 12-year-old kid who has just inherited a gigantic fortune, and uh, his uncle – they're on an island, and his uncle now wants to kill him for the money, and that – is where all this stuff dovetails from. And next thing you know, this is just like they've gone backlot crazy. There's all of this just bizarre stuff that's happening in this movie only because they had, like, stuff on the backlot to use to shoot it. It's ridiculous. There's, like, mushrooms and, and sharks, and it, it just gets out of control. It's really, really unhinged. Uh, and yet in a, it's a total William Castle movie. And uh, then there is also Wild Palms. A lot of people have forgotten about Wild Palms. Yes, I remember that. Wild Palms was Oliver Stone's answer to Twin Peaks. This was a limited series in the in the wake of Twin Peaks when suddenly everyone realized, hey, we can do weird stuff on TV. Let's go full weird. So Wild Palms was this kind of uh, phantasmagorical uh, event series that was on ABC. It was written by Bruce Wagner, and they solicited and, and and Oliver Stone only presented it. He produced it. He didn't he didn't direct any of it. But they went and and got four rather remarkable and very different directors at the time: Phil Juano, Peter Hewitt, Keith Gordon, and Catherine Bigelow, mm-hmm. who was really kind of uh, cutting her teeth at the time. This is 1993. And um, uh, does it all hang together? Not really, but it's a fascinating cast. You know, James Belushi and Kim Cattrall, Angie Dickinson, uh, Dana Delaney, Bob Loggia, um, Ben Savage. It's a, it's a pretty interesting bunch of actors in this very, very strange and surreal limited series that takes place just slightly in the future of Los Angeles. Um, kind of Twin Peaksy.
2: Yeah, Jim Belushi really good in that.
1: Series. Brad Brad Dourif was in it. BB Newworth, you know, a lot a lot of people uh, showed up, and it has an amazing score. I think the the Ryuchi Sakamoto score is maybe the best thing about it. I really really love the score for this thing. So not for all tastes, but uh, but pretty great. Tim, what else we got?
2: Well, I'm gonna jump over and do some of these uh, titles out of a uh, shout. Oh yeah, um, uh, including uh, the Sicilian 1987 Christopher Lambert film. Uh, directed by Michael Cimino. You know, Michael Cimino only directed well, seven feature films, eight films altogether, because he made a, 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 a short thing. But, but only seven feature films, Michael Cimino, uh, this adapted from the Mario Puzo novel about Salvador uh, G, uh, Giuliano, yeah, um, uh, who who was this guy, a, a real figure, a historical figure. As, as a matter of fact, there's a movie, there's a movie about him that came out in the '60s. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, um, you know, all about that period where he was basically. Uh, fighting with uh, the, the mafia, uh, the church, uh, the, the police officials as they were attempting to, to make Sicily an independent nation uh, and you know it 's a, a gangster movie at the end of the day. Um, 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 he, he was, he was t- taken down on a hail of gunfire um, in, in the 1960s so it 's an interesting story about this act person Now of all the stories that t- of all the films to tell this story, this Michael Cimino film is not the best. Uh, Christopher Lambert, of course, coming off of uh, all the things that he was doing, had been doing, uh, including Highlander and some of that other stuff. But it's it's a it's a, it's a, it's an okay movie about a period in that history uh, that uh, not a whole lot of people know about. Does anything is anything interesting come on that DVD? Not
1: nothing that uh, nothing really really worth uh, mentioning. To be honest, um, it's really an unfortunate film. But you know what is what is worth mentioning is the other Michael Cimino film that's out on 4K, The Deer Hunter. Ah. Finally out on 4K. Um, how do you th- how do you think the Deer Hunter holds up for you? How does it hold up compared to all the other Vietnam stuff?
2: Well, they, particularly those early ones uh, that, in, that that include obviously Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I kind of I kind of let Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now live in a world of their own, as opposed to those ones that come out in the 1980s, uh, beginning with Platoon. Yeah. And, and, and whatnot, Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now uh, sort of live in that zone. Uh, the war was only over for a couple of years, a few, about four years, uh, when those when those films were being made. Deer Hunter holds up pretty good to me in terms of the performances. Um, uh, I, I, I think anyway. What what what? How do you feel about Deer Hunter? I I
1: I love. You know, it's funny because I've been. You know, I, I watched um, Heaven's Gate a little not too long ago. And I, it's fascinating because Michael Cimino strikes me as a director with almost more more ambition than vision, if that makes sense. Uh, he's always, or his, his grasp exceeds his reach, uh, or his reach exceeds his grasp, whichever way that, uh, that, that aphorism goes. Um, you know, I think The Deer Hunter is a beautifully made film. I think it, it gets eclipsed by Apocalypse Now mm. just, you know, uh, the following year. And, uh, probably deservedly so because the deer hunter, if you talk to Vietnam vets, they're like, yeah, that's not what it was like. Mm. But in 1978, that's what the movies convinced people it was like. And it does have a real poetic quality to it. So it's a, it's a bit of an unusual movie. It has some great performances. It's really, uh, you know, uh, ambitious. Um, but again, knowing what we know about Vietnam from subsequent films it's not at all in any way an accurate representation. Uh, the, the, uh, the 4k is, is quite dazzling shout kind of killed it with the 4k. They've got an audio commentary with, uh, the late Vilmos Zygmunt and, uh, journalist Bob Fisher on it. Uh, also has interviews with John Savage. who's still with us. And Michael Dealey, the producer, very, very fine producer. And then they've got deleted scenes and interview with David Thompson, the great film critic, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So, um, it's a. This is a really, really nice 4K release. Shout Factory deciding that they are going to dip their feet in the 4K field, and they did so with uh, with the Deer Hunter. And it's a. It's a real nice. Uh, it's a nice debut.
2: Mm, inter- interesting stuff. Uh Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, 1992. Yeah. Uh, James Foley directing David Mamet's uh, adaptation of, J- of David Mamet's play. Uh, look, a tour de force uh, acting compliment here. Uh, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, youngish Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Stacy also youngish. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're you all so
1: young. They're so young, especially Alec Baldwin. It just freaks me out a little bit seeing how young and chiseled he is in this movie.
2: No, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I first started. I, I caught uh, there's a television series called Knots Landing, middle aged Yes, uh, and the that Dallas spinoff. Out. Dallas spinoff. That's my first Alec Baldwin. He came into that, into that show. I don't know, fairly late in its run, and he was just astounding on that show. Um, uh, Not unlike that fellow that you loved on o- Ozark. What's his name? Tom, uh, who came in on Ozark. Uh, oh, Tom Pelfrey. Tom Pelfrey. Right, Tom yeah. Pelfrey. It yeah. was one of those moments for Alec Baldwin. Launched his career before you know it. It's Miami Blues, and you know, and he's a leading man. Uh, and then has since become the sort of leading character actor guy. Here he's still in his prime. Uh, look, this is all about uh, that that uh, the language, uh, the, the all yeah. of these guys executing that a yeah. uh, uh, sort of dialogue in that uh, memedian sort of way, despite the fact that this is directed by James Foley. Yeah. Um. Uh. It's a you know, look. It's the it's the death of a salesman of I guess we'll call it our generation. Yeah, it kind of uh, is. Uh, that's that that's what this movie, that play in this this movie sort of is. Still holds up as far as I'm concerned. I I think so too. Anything, anything decent on that DVD? Yeah, it's quite
1: a lot actually. So it's a, uh, this is a 4K transfer uh, and from the original camera negative. That's what this is based on. There's a new conversation with James Foley, uh, and I'm going to tell you James Foley uh, story here in a second. There's uh, also an audio commentary with uh, James Foley, an audio commentary with Jack Lemmon. All of these recorded, obviously, you know, previously. Um and, and uh, there's a little featurette on the famous line from the film, the the one that we that has become part of the vernacular. A B C always be closing. hmm And uh, a wonderful tribute to Jack Lemmon as well. Let me tell you my James Foley story. So James Foley made his directing debut, uh, on uh, with a with uh, a movie that starred Aidan uh, Quinn and Daryl Hannah. Do you remember what that was? Oh, that's, that's, it's escaping me, I'm afraid. Uh it was uh Reckless in nineteen eighty four. Oh, of
2: course. Right? Like, of and, course it was sort of a sort of a French New Wave knockoff. Yeah, and, and it was
1: uh, it was right. like a super stylized, you know, Aiden Quinn is the new kid at school and he and, and you know, they don't like him, but Daryl Hannah finds him mysterious. It was very James Deany, right? It was kind mm. of a kind of a James Deany rebel thing, anyway. Uh, so James Foley, I was an I was an usher at the Man's National at the time. That was my first year at UCLA. And James Foley, we we did we opened the film. We had a premiere, and and uh, you know my my whole shtick at the time, I don't know why, but I was always talking to the filmmakers when they'd show up. I was somehow always at the door, and I would always chat them up because I wanted to learn, right? Mm-hmm. The studio executives, I was that annoying guy, that annoying studio, like theater employee who, who talks to the people he's not supposed to talk to. And, uh, and James Foley was nervous as anybody. You couldn't believe how nervous he was. His first film, right? He's just out of USC film school. And I had at least three or four lengthy conversations with him, which were hilarious because he was nervous. He was, it was weird that he was looking to me to make him feel better about himself as a filmmaker. He's like, you know, did the audiences like it? Did what? 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 How did people react last night? Was it? Was it? Did, did anyone applaud? Like, like well, he was picking my brain. I'm like, <laughs> and here I am with my stupid, you know, uh, uh, ridiculous th- polyester theater blazer and bow tie, you know, and I'm like, dude. <laughs> Don't worry about it. They tell you you killed you killed last yeah. night. People really liked it. You know what scene they really liked? They liked it when the when the uh, the Kim Wild stuff, Kids in America, comes up, and you got the water reflecting and all that stuff. So he goes, "Oh, really?" They like that. I was like, "Yeah, it's totally." Now all these years later, I'm thinking that was weird, man. That was weird. Here I like here I am in my bow tie and my blazer, and I'm like, and I'm I'm trying to you know talk confidence into James Foley. Strange oh me- oh,
2: strange memories. Uh, he wanted to do. He did at close close range. At close range. So yeah. good, good, good. Southmore. Yeah. Uh, then he started running around with Madonna and Sean Penn. Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah. made a whole bunch of those Madonna videos, and eventually, "Who's That Girl." Yeah. Uh, which is like, now, James, if you wanted to be worried about <laughs> a movie that you made, that's the one that needed to worry, your son. Yeah. Uh, not that person. of course. Then he knocked off "After Dark, My Sweet," which is a noir that I just absolutely still adore. One um, uh, of the better,
1: better noir directors. I mean, of the of
2: current directors, he he really is uh, kind of one of the better ones. Uh, yeah, he uh, he, even, uh, he even knocked out at least one episode of Twin Peaks way back in the day. Yeah. Um. So you know, yeah, yeah, James Foley. Well, what's he done lately? I'm just, I'm oh, looking at he's, Oh, he's been, he's been involved in, well, a lot of television, House of Cards and Wayward Pines, but he's involved in oh, the yeah. Shades. Yeah, 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 he's yeah. Got, he's got one or two of those under his, under his belt. I'm looking at this one, Bones. Are we talking about the 2001 yep. Snoop Dogg film? We are indeed, yes. are directed by Ernest Dickerson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you, like, look, this, this was, uh, well, the film's about this gangster guy, you know, Snoop Dogg, <laughs> who, gets, who gets killed but comes back as a ghost. Uh, to mess with the people who took him out, which is an interesting sort of neat uh, concept in and of itself uh, with a film that sort of set yep. set down in the hood. Uh, you got Snoop Dogg, you got Pam Grid, you got Michael T. Weiss uh, in the film. Clifton Powell, all uh, all these actors who sort of went on to have have pretty pretty interesting careers. And and what was uh you know I think Ernest Dickerson's directorial debut was Juice. Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, with t and uh, Omar Epps and all those sort of guys uh, so you know this this, this, this represents uh, sort of like midway through his career but it's a decent sort of quasi horror film, Pam Greer still looking fantastic in this movie.
1: And I have a soft spot for this too because my former neighbor uh, Adam Simon, director of Carnosaur uh, and a very fine documentarian as well, uh, co-wrote it so you know kudos to, to Adam Simon on that one too.
2: Anything on that? Uh, on
1: that? Uh, Abs- uh, absolutely, yes. There's a whole ton of stuff. There's a new interview with Ernest Dickerson and Adam Simon. Uh, they talk to the effects and uh, the effects guy and the, cin- and the cinematographer. There's an audio commentary with Snoop Dogg, Dickerson, and Adam Simon. Uh, deleted scenes. I mean, it's, it's quite a lot of stuff. In, and there's even a featurette called uh, "Urban Gothic: Bones and Its Influences," which mm. is interesting because it actually does—it did influence things. Even though the, you, you don't know that the film is less known than the films that it influenced. That's the weird thing.
2: Yeah, very impressive. Very yeah. impressive. There. The, the Wizard. Is this just uh, the 1989 uh, Fritz Savage movie? Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, obviously, a very young Fritz Savage, a fairly young Christian Slater. Yeah. Uh, uh, playing these guys who are, you know, on the sort of like cross-country thing to go play this big, in this big pinball, uh, or video game anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, 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 uh, uh, thing. You know what's neat about this movie? Uh, I believe that Deborah Foreman is in this movie, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, Depp performance of course, Valley Girls and all that kind of stuff. And this was a pretty cool movie back in the day for kids uh, at the beginning uh, of the sort of video game film sort of thing uh, yeah. that we were doing. So, you know, uh, not bad, not bad at all. Any special any special features with not, uh, Not, we...
1: a, uh, yeah, nothing that's great. I mean, there's a Todd Holland audio commentary and some, some deleted Todd, scenes. Todd
2: Holland being the director.
1: Yeah, Todd Holland, who's a, who's a good director. Uh, there are a bunch of featurettes on disc two, but they're all kind of sort of standard things. It's all kind of EPK stuff. There's a Q and A from uh, a gaming expo in 2019 as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately the film's the thing. It's a it's a little bit of a time capsule, but it's a fun time capsule.
2: It's a neat one. And you know why yeah. I was wrong? It's not Deborah Foreman that's in uh, that's in The Wizard. Deborah is in April Fool's Day, oh, uh, which is the the uh, the other film that came up here. Deborah, of course, we again all the way back to Valley Girl and all that kind of stuff. Uh, kind of neat kind of a neat thing. Uh, this this is this is about this is kind of like a ten little Indians kind of thing. These these uh, these nine college students on this uh, remote island stand the and imagine they start to get picked off one by one. Who's doing it uh, is the is the question of the film. You know, look, a fairly good back in the day. I think this is 1986 or so. Yeah, uh, um, sort of a horror thriller that's kind of cool. Uh, I think, anyway, any interesting stuff on that DVD? Yeah, so,
1: yeah, interviews with uh, the director Fred Walton and uh, some of the cast and cinematographer and the composer Charles Bernstein uh, and some TV spots. Uh, yeah, a little Frank Mancuso blast from there. You know what else? Uh, while we're talking about horror, uh, make quick mention of the Universal Horror Collection Volume Four, which is also out from Shout Factory and Universal. They uh, they're obviously mining the uh, the crypt as it were, for all of the old universal horror films that uh, that followed on the heels of the original great horror films, which you all know, the you know, The Mummy and Frankenstein and Dracula and so forth. Uh, these are some interesting ones that you may not aware, be aware of. These are all from the uh, 1930s and 40s, uh, Night Key from 1937, Night Monster, 1942, The Climax from 1944, and House of Horrors from 46. Probably the best of these, I think, is uh, House of Horrors, which is actually a surprisingly good film. Came right after the end of World War II and uh, introduced the, the Creeper. And it is, um, you, can, you feel the residue of World War II having passed in the film, which is probably what makes it so interesting. Uh, Boris Karloff in the climax, also very, very memorable and Bella, uh, Bela Lugosi in Night Monster, also very memorable. Um, interesting quartet of films. If you have the other three, this is worth adding to the collection.
2: These are some of the more obscure ones, but actually really quite good in their own right. Uh, I guess we'll mention Curse of the Werewolf out of 1961. You know, a, a bit later, Terrence Fisher's film. Uh, set in 18th century Spain, you know, your your standard Werewolf sort of story uh, done that way. Oliver Reed in the movie, I suppose, is the most interesting thing. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so you know, decent 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 film. Uh, Curse of course, the word was the standard. The standard story uh, is, except for set in 18th century Spain. Um, anything interesting uh, uh, other,
1: other uh, than o- other than Oliver Reed uh, in makeup? No, not really. Uh, this was a Hammer film. Yeah, they, I mean, it's 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 beautiful. It's a 4K scan from the original negative. New audio commentary with uh, film historian Steve Haberman and uh, Constantine Nazar. Otherwise, it's just uh, general featurette stuff and some cast interviews. Um, not nothing. Nothing really earth shattering.
2: Well, then we'll move on to Escape from L.A. Yeah. ninety six. John Carpenter again, of course. Escape from New York. John Carpenter. Um, uh, so Snake is, you know, back at it, <laughs> but this time he's got to get the hell out of L.A. Which to me. Seems like an easier feat than escaping from New York. And in New York, it's a city on an island. You're yeah. It's like, L.A. Well, what do you escape? Are you, are you escaping from the Valley? Are you escaping from Malibu? Are you escaping I, from Santa Monica? Exactly what do you mean by and, escape from L.A.?
1: And I think that they knew – I think they were pressured into doing this at a certain point and uh, or else John Carpenter felt like he, was, he didn't have really a choice. He had to kind of go back to this well. It is so ridiculous. He kind of owns it at the end with the with, there's a there's a surfing gag. I won't tell you anymore. <laughs> but but I mean, it's really stupid. Um yeah, I mean, come on. It, it's yeah. just it's, escape
2: it, from LA. You go to the beach, you get yeah. on a boat, you escape from LA. It's not hard. Uh, but you know, just, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. anything, anything on
1: that? There, no, not really. Uh some <laughs> some interviews, some interviews. It's a nice transfer, but just just generally interviews and TV spots. That's about it. No, oh, well. On? uh one more shout from uh the on the horror end of things Frankenstein the true story this is a uh this is with James Mason again David McCallum michael Sarrazin again uh and Jane Seymour this was uh a nineteen seventy three film in the hammer vein that uh tries to sort of give you a new spin on the Frankenstein story which it can't really do but uh at least you give them an A for effort. They're trying hard. They're trying to find a new way of, 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 you know, finding horror in the story of Frankenstein that is perhaps more faithful to the book that has not been done in the 870 previous movies. It, again, it doesn't really quite succeed, but it's a really, really interesting effort. And, um, more so, I think even than the Kenneth Branagh film, which also tried to kind of find a new way in, but, uh, you know, I, it's, it's got some interesting extras as well. Um, some, you know, Jane Seymour is interviewed. Leonard Whiting is interviewed. And uh, Sam Irvin uh, gives a new audio commentary. So Frankenstein, the true story. Not great, but, you know, worth kind of uh, interesting. It's interesting thing to look at. Um, I want to talk for a second, too, about something I posted on the Facebook page. I did an unboxing of the first volume of the Columbia Classics 4K Ultra HD Collection. Uh, and uh, this is the first... Of what is expected to be many volumes uh, from the uh, from Sony that takes classic Columbia films selected by kind of a polling system and puts them out in these beautiful, beautiful, just gloriously packaged four k ultra HD sets that also have obviously movies anywhere uh, codes uh, for all the films and you can get you know all kinds of reward stuff on the uh, Sony Rewards site for them as well. Uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful set there 's a booklet. Um, you know, 80-page 80 80 hardbound book. And the films included are kind of an odd compendium. They don't really belong together necessarily. You know, Columbia has won 12 Academy Awards for Best Picture, a record that it shares with UA. Only two of them are on this set, Lawrence of Arabia and Gandhi. Everything else is all over the map. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Dr. Strangelove, A League of Their Own, and Jerry Maguire. Mm. But I will say this, Tim. They're gorgeous. These are some of the best 4K transfers I've ever seen. The Lawrence of Arabia 4K transfer everyone's been waiting for it for a long time. Everybody's been really really just hoping that this would come and it does not disappoint. It is extraordinary. If you have a 4K TV and a state of the art system, you've got to own this. This is I mean all of these are great. League of their own looks beautiful as well. Really beautiful. Gandhi has never looked this good. I didn't I saw Gandhi opening day in the theaters with my mother and it didn't look this good. Uh, it really is a spectacular transfer. And, um, uh, to kind of put a finer point on it as well, I interviewed uh, Robert Harris, the legendary archivist, who of course did the first analog restoration of Lawrence of Arabia and who consulted on the digital restoration that they did for this one and who knows the people at, at Sony very, very well who are responsible for this. So at the end of the show, I'll pop that interview up and uh, you can listen to my my little chat with Robert Harris, who goes on at length as to what, you know, what goes into uh, doing this kind of work and why it matters. And... Um, We will have that coming up at the end of the show. But this is a great set. You have to own it. It's really extraordinary. That's all I can tell you. The extras are through the roof. Uh, The transfers are phenomenal. The audio is phenomenal. There's just, it's, and you know, give it to somebody as a gift. People, this is the kind of gift that just makes people lose their minds. It's just so beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to just open up and see this fantastic box set, the way it opens up and the big Columbia logo inside. It's really, it's fantastic. It's just beautiful. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, you know, I'm also going to make mention, we finally got the, this was delayed, the, uh, 25th anniversary Steelbook of Braveheart on 4K. Oh. Mel, I just saw Mel the, uh, the other day, before quarantine, like a few weeks before quarantine, I saw Mel at the, at the, at school. You know, our daughters are in different grades, but they're at the same elementary school. And, uh, every once in a while, Mel will show up there and all his glory, his beard and all. Um, but, uh, Braveheart, I still think kind of holds up. We talked last week about, um, the, the, the quasi spinoff, Robert the Bruce, mm, uh,
2: with the same actor. Same,
1: yeah. Uh, McFadden. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think I forget that. I still think Braveheart strangely holds up. It does have a real nineties kind of melodramatic, uh, quality to it, but, it's just a big, bold, ambitious movie. You got to kind of hand it to them. They pulled well, that's, it off.
2: Well, that, that's it, isn't it? And now, of course, even back then, in terms of uh, any any bit of historical accuracy, none, none, <laughs> none <laughs> whatsoever. No, throwing gay kids out windows and shit, and get, you know, kids who weren't gay. Yeah, you know the the, the thing with the yeah, It you know, oh, yeah. wasn't gay. Um, but I, you know, where all of that came from. Uh, but does it make for an extremely dramatic, theatrical film? Yep. It certainly does. But you cannot. I I used to deal. You know, I taught history for years. Yeah. And I would deal with kids who would come and they would write these papers. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I know like, what you're saying. It, kid, I know you saw that movie <laughs> because you you wrote into this paper. <laughs> the exact dumb crap and it used to drive me crazy. I, I appreciated the attempt of the kids <laughs> to actually engage in the history, but you can't do it with a Mel Gibson movie. You have to actually read the assignment. Oh my god. Oh. That still drives me a little crazy. One of the reasons That's I give funny. It all, well, uh, well,
1: it's, it's, you know, I mean, they've got a lot of great special features on here, uh, featurettes, and there's commentary by Mel Gibson uh, from the original release of this. It's not different from the original 4K release, but it's a steelbook, so it's a nice thing to stick on the shelf. Uh, I also want to do a giveaway, Tim. Uh, this is a film that I'm covering this week. It opens, uh, it, it releases this week on Blu-ray. It's also on VOD. I'm talking about it at the end of the, uh, this week on, uh, on Film Week as well. It is the new version of Enter the Fat Dragon. Now, this is from a ago. We're giving away four copies of this. So email us at godsdigigods.com, gods at digigods.com, or gods at Make sure that the email gets to us by the 17th, by July 17th. And we'll give you a good long window for it. And we will pick four lucky people to get a Blu-ray of Enter the Fat Dragon starring Donnie Yen. Now, for anyone who's, who knows, the original Enter the Fat Dragon was a Sammo Hong film. Yeah. And it was Samo basically riffing on Bruce Lee and and sort of owning his corpulence because Samo what we all love about Samo is the guy moves like a jaguar. Yeah. And yet he has always been fat. Yeah. Now, Samo is in Enter the Dragon, by the yeah. way. He's yeah. he's you know, that's when he was very young and he's in at the beginning along uh like he's he's in that very very beginning sequence. Where Bruce Lee is uh, is fighting guys, and, and he's eventually going to fight Bolo Young. Samo is the young fat kid in that scene, so he he has a history with this. Anyway, Donnie Yen is not fat, but Donnie Yen puts a fat suit on and has a grand old time. And as much as Enter the Fat Dragon, the original was a riff on Enter the Dragon. Donnie Yen's End of the Fat Dragon is a riff on the original End of the Fat Dragon. So there's a fun kind of inside meta thing going on. Donnie Yen has a lot of fun with this. Donnie Yen, whom I've interviewed twice, including once at my house, uh, has a sense of humor that is often not tapped. He can be very funny in movies as well. And he doesn't oftentimes get a chance to do that. Donnie Yen has had a longer career than any of his contemporaries. Uh, Jackie is long in the tooth. Jet Li is basically retired. Donnie comes from that generation, and he is still fierce. So
2: yeah, uh, he, 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 he endlessly young. He's, he's the Dick Clark of uh, of of, of, Mark, of Mark's movies. He's just yeah. you know his face doesn't give a, his age away. It doesn't. All. What's, no. that, what's that, uh, that? That there was a, a series in the middle '90s that Samuel came over and did. Would uh, he played a cop? Martial, yeah. Law. Yeah, Martial, Martial law. Martial law. Martial law. I, I yeah. watch it almost every day. It's fantastic. Uh, and, and his work in that series. Uh, you know, he's probably, he's probably like 45 years old by now. Yep. His work in that series is still outstanding. And it's it is. him in every one of those action sequences.
1: So I want you to put dragon, just the word dragon in the subject line. Send us an email at godsdigigods.com or gods com. Dragon in the subject line, uh, name and address in the body of the email. We'll get it by the 17th. We will pick a winner that, uh, weekend. And uh, by the 20th, we will have uh, have winners and four people will be alerted that you will be receiving uh, a Blu-ray of Ed of the Fat Dragon starring Donnie Yen. What a great amount of fun that is. Uh, Tim, got anything else that uh, we should be hitting right now?
2: I was going to pop over to some of the new stuff, particularly Trolls World Tour. Oh yeah, um, uh, which of course was uh, slightly controversial with its release. It sort of you know, you know was set to come out right about the time that, that everything went into lockdown. Yeah, uh, and there was an issue over whether I think it's Universal. So that Universal, right? Yep. Um, and then Universal ran into uh, some trouble with the uh, with the um, um, theatrical um, uh, distributors yep. because they decided to take it and pull it and, and put it on a platform. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was, there was a whole lot of hubbub about that. I suppose that's all gone now, that everything's on a platform. Uh, in any case, there it was, Trolls World Tour. Uh, I suppose the most interesting thing about this, is all about these trolls and uh, they're trying to uh, engage in the history of rock and roll and uh, and, and take over all the music and the world, all that stuff, you know, all these people. So the interesting thing are the, the voices that we have here. We got Anna Kendrick, Justin Timberlake, uh, James Corden. Uh, we got Kelly Clarkson, we got Sam Rockwell. We got George Clinton. Yeah. I absolutely love, Mary J. Bly. Um, um, uh, so you know, a, a tour de force of voices uh, engaged in this little piece of animation. I don't know that this was ever going to be in the run for an uh, an animated uh, an nah. Oscar for animation. Nah. I don't think so. Nah. um, um uh, Frank, I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of any one of the of the uh, major animated releases, uh, you know, uh, post pandemic animated releases, are really Oscar worthy films. Yeah, you know. If this uh, gets can
1: you imagine if this gets nominated for an oscar i'll just i'm gonna quit i'm gonna quit i'm gonna quit, you know, I'm gonna quit my I, job
2: i it's funny because you know one of the things that the academy Award did that we didn't mention is that they mandated ten yeah in, in, as opposed to you know between what is it nine and ten yeah now every ten um so I don't know that that's relevant over on the animation side the animation nominations over there if there's some like, nah. minimum number that they have Nah, to it's five it's still five. Yeah, well, you know what? They're going to be hard-pressed to find five. <laughs> they have a really hard time. I, I, this I really is... think so. I, I, there, there, there are no animated films uh you know large-scale animated films at the moment now who knows what some of the little animation houses have that they might put out over the rest of the year um but there are no major big releases including this one uh that i think are worthy of an oscar nomination i agree
1: well this is the dance party edition in 4k with all sparkles on the packaging so you can't miss it if you walk into a best buy or somewhere it'll 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 beckon you um, I want to mention a couple of quick little indies here that are new. Water Lily Jaguar and Point Defiance, both from Bayview. A couple of good little indies. Um, Point Defiance, is, I, I thought, was really quite touching. This is about a—the uh, the, the, the backdrop to this is the, uh, the Afghan war, and uh, a, a guy comes back. From serving in Afghanistan and uh, a, a, a family's history, his family's history has to sort of be dredged up and reconciled. I won't, I can't say more than that, but it, it's one of those movies where the war at home and the war that you just came back from kind of collide in a very, in a, in a really interesting and, and very smart way. This is a, this is a sharp little movie. It's only a hundred minutes long. It's worth checking out. It's from Bayview. It's Point Defiance. And the other one, uh, Water Lily Jaguar, is a, a really interesting look at the creative process. This is about a, uh, a, a writer's struggle, a writer's creative struggle, uh, and how it impacts his life and his marriage and his inability to sort of reach his own creative pinnacle and, and uh, his insecurities uh, very, very interesting executive produced by Paul Thomas Anderson to give a good shot to uh, upstart writer-director Melora Walters, who does a really, really good job here. Uh, James Lagro, who's always so wonderful in all of these little indie stars, alongside uh, Mare Sorvino and Domin- uh, Dominic Monaghan. Um, good, good, smart little indie film from Bayview, Water Lily Jaguar. Really worth checking out.
2: Um, uh, the, the Photograph, 2020 film. Um, uh, that came out from from East Ray, Lakeith Stanfill in the film, Uh, Stella Miji, the actual director and writer of this film, a lovely little film about uh, several love stories that sort of intertwine some of them are set in the present, some of them are set in the past. Uh, it's not particularly complicated or astounding film or anything like that. It's just this lovely little movie uh, with these perfectly beautiful people, Issa and Lakeith Stanfield in particular, um, uh, engaged in these sort of uh, romantic interludes. Um, uh, it, the music is the thing that really sets this, this movie apart, apart. And some really, really good performances, including um, a young man named Calvin Harrison Jr. who popped up in a couple of films last year. Um, uh, as we were moving into award season, Waves was one of them. Uh, uh, Loose was the other one, um, and he is, you know, really made his mark in those films. He pops up here too, uh, Tiona Paris, and a few other folks. A perfectly lovely little film. Anything, anything by way of special features on the, uh, on what is that by the way? Is that a Blu-ray?
1: It's a Blu-ray. It comes with a Movies Anywhere code, uh, and it only has some featurettes. It doesn't have a commentary or anything, which is really ah, unfortunate. Yeah. You know, uh, because here's a. Thing, Lakeith Stanfield is such a diverse actor, and he doesn't get the credit for it. I I talk to people constantly where I'm like, yeah, you like you know Lakeith Stanfield, oh yeah, the, yeah I like him. Uh What else has he done? Oh, he was in Sorry to Bother You. Wait, who was he in Sorry to Bother You? He's the star. Oh, He's
2: the star of the movie. Wait, you yeah, mean the you guy know. the guy in Knives Out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the detective well, in Knives Out. Yeah. Of course, he, of course, he plays that guy in ATL. Yeah. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the sort of, the sort of sidekick to uh, – so, you know, yeah.
1: And then, and and yeah. then I'm like – and then he Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. What's he in Uncut Gems? He's the street guy who's the who introduces Adam S- Oh, yeah, and yeah, he's getting Get Out, too. You remember him in Get Out? No, where is he in Get Out? Like, no one can place him
2: because he just dissolves into every part he's in. Yeah, which is in some ways a very, very good thing. He, a- he's just playing that romantic lead, and he's damn good at it.
1: Yeah, he's really good at it. He's He's got all kinds of range. It's very impressive.
2: Uh, the Banana Splits movie are we talking about uh, oh uh,
1: my gosh <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, the yeah came out. we're talking about a horror comedy kind of thing first of all the Banana Splits you and I we think of the Banana Splits we have to go back to the 70s yes Television, Saturday morning television, live action television, th- those are our banana splits. It, it, uh, were, were those those brothers? Um,
1: Sid and Marty Croft started, Marty. yeah, they, they they started with the banana splits and then dovetailed into other things. And, you know, the banana splits song was the one that we all remember. La, 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 la. Yeah, but, but, so, so some really sick and deranged person said, hey, I know, why don't we resurrect the banana splits from my childhood and make it into a slasher film uh, and uh, that's that's basically what this is It this is so weird and so strange and uh, I, I, I just don't I don't know how to even describe this they decided to take the banana splits and put them at the center of a horror film it's weird for people like Tim and me who, who remember the show originally it is traumatizing uh for people who don't remember the show it'll probably be kind of weirdly funny but uh (laughs) but it is definitely a strange thing that they did it's very odd it's on blu-ray and dvd if you grew up on the show or if you didn't it's really worth checking out because it's so out from left field it really is not a lot of extras on this just some featurettes uh but it's really a left field weird movie
2: uh, this movie, The Three Christ, uh The Three Christs, I happen to have a review on Film Week. I found it a fairly interesting sort of movie, at least in the context in which it is constructed, which is loosely based on a true story, based on a novel called The Three Christs of uh, Ypsilanti. Um, so what you have, and this is all set in the 1950s, is you have this psych- psychiatrist. Uh, Dr. Stone, uh, who, who's sent to work in this asylum where there are these three inmates, uh, paranoid, schizophrenic patients, including Peter Dinklage, uh, uh, um, um, among them Richard Gere, Bradley Whitford. Uh, uh, I forget who was playing. Wal- that, Walton Goggins. Walton Goggins. Yes, Walton Goggins. Yeah. That's who it is. And those three characters, those three inmates, all fancy themselves Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, 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 actually, and, and actually what – one of them considers himself the son of God. The other one considers himself Jesus Christ. The other one considers himself uh, – so, so, so what the psychiatrist decides to do is to put them in a room together and, and force them to face uh, that notion that they are all – of course you know, they're all mentally ill is what they are. Uh, and that's what he's trying to break through uh, with them. It's an interesting sort of drama, loosely based on something that actually happened, you know, based on that book. Juliana Margulies, also in the film. Uh, you know, it's okay. It's okay in, in, in the context of the discussion that's going on uh, and, and the work that the psychiatrist is doing to try to break through to these these people with rash with reason rather than what they wanted to do back in the fifties, which is just hook them up to the machine, you know, yeah. uh, the old uh, electrodes and give them a zap, which also happens in the movie. So interesting, uh, look at a psychiatry in the uh, 1950s. Anything on that boy?
1: No, nothing, nothing. That's, uh, a, a, no, not really. No, nothing, nothing that's at all. Bummer. Yeah, it's too yeah. bad. That's a bummer. All right. Uh, did you see the boy too? Tim Brom's the boy too.
2: Did not see that
1: one. Gosh, what a what an odd uh, a movie this is. This is uh, one of those movies that wants us to. It, it's it's a doll movie, right? It's like uh, you know, Child's Play and all those Twilight Twilight Zones about. Uh, and, and what's what's the 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 uh, Annabelle, freaking doll. Annabelle. Yeah, it's another one of those dolls. Dolls are uh, completely freakish. Never buy a doll for any child ever. Uh, Brahms is the name of this young boy's doll, and he's. Uh, he, you know, there's a creepy family estate, and uh, the doll is his friend, he nicknames it Brahms, Katie Holmes is very concerned as his mother, and uh, of course, you know, Brahms is, is Brahms causes problems. Uh, it's a creepy looking doll, I can't imagine anybody who would even make a doll that looks like this thing. It kind of goes through the, ma- the, the motions of all these previous doll horror films, but... It's pretty well done. It has an alternate ending on it that's really kind of a pointless thing. Uh, but, you know, for for a horror film that is rated PG-13, it might be the most effective I've seen since The Ring. That's what I'll say. Mm. There you go. Uh,
2: a little, 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 little William Nicholson film called The Hope Gap. Uh, oh, I nice. love this movie. Uh, the, the wonderful Annette Benning. It's, it's really about the, the the dissolution of a long, long, long marriage after 29 years. Bill Nye announces to an unsuspecting Annette Benning that he's uh, that uh, that he would like to leave the marriage, and it's really, really about what how this plays out, what effect this has on their adult son, um, uh, and in that way, it's uh, sort of a, a deeply moving and uh, very quiet uh, film uh, that explores uh, you know something that's not. Uh, you know, there's something that, that's not unknown to a, to a great many people. I thought it was very good. Bill uh, Nye uh, and Annette Bening just doing outstanding work.
1: I, I agree. You know, William Nicholson, who was best known for uh, co-writer on Gladiator and Les Miserables and a lot of big movies, really big epic movies, Mandela,
2: Shadowlands, right, based
1: on yeah. his play. He, he, he really doesn't direct a lot. The last thing he did was Firelight, which was 23 years ago, which is a wonderful film. And so mm-hmm. I wish he'd direct more because when he, he he really has a wonderful way with actors and uh, yeah I agree this is a beautiful film, beautiful film. Yeah,
2: in, 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 in anything uh, nah. a, a, a commentary would have been
1: nice. Yeah, commentary yeah. would have been nice, but no such thing. It's not even on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD. It's really quite uh, quite unfortunate. I want to make a make a quick uh, plug for a good little uh, kind of noiry thriller, uh, Blood and Money with Tom Berenger. This is a this is a really sharp film. It takes place in uh, Maine. In the rural north country of Maine. And Tom Barringer is a guy who is, uh, he's just, he's got a little bit of a history, as these guys always do. And uh, he winds up during a regular hunting trip of running in, uh, of having a run in with these bank robbers who are uh, trying to make a getaway with the stash. Through the across the border in the north country of Maine, trying to get off into, on, into Canada and evade the authorities. Anyway, it basically becomes a cat and mouse thing. And, you know, he's the hunter, and now he's the hunted, and who's hunting whom? And, you know, it, 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 we've seen this before, but I've got to be honest, Tom Berenger is such a good actor, he doesn't get enough credit for his nuance. And uh, it's very, very competently directed by John Barr. It's a good little indie. It's worth checking out. Again, it doesn't really pave any new ground in this genre. It just kind of it, it knows the genre that it's doing, and it decides to take a really interesting backdrop in Maine and, and a really good actor, and just kind of let them try to bring something new to it. And to that extent, it's very successful. It's called Blood and Money. Fight for Survival is the tagline. Terrible tagline, but uh, check it out. Blu-ray with Tom Berenger from Screen Media.
2: Mm. Uh, another fairly decent uh, thriller, the postcard killings, uh, Jeffrey D. Morgan, Falka Jensen in this one, uh, a New York cop uh, goes to, a, uh, a New York detective actually goes to London to investigate the death of his daughter. Um, uh, and he ends up working with this, uh, this journalist uh, that sort of help him um, and navigate uh, his way around Europe. Uh, as he tries out, tries to find out what happened to his daughter. Um, yeah, look, it's it's one of those movies. It's not unlike the Taken's and the Taken Twos and the other things about a, you know the, a, a cop who's going to go and get revenge for what happened to his family. It sort of treads all of that fairly familiar territory. But you know, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is and and Popper Jensen are both good actors, and the uh, the storyline, though familiar, um, something about his familiarity actually makes it fa- fairly endearing. Um, so I gotta I gotta say this was sort of okay with me to sort of check out during the pandemic thing. You know. Uh, I, I kind of like those films where a dad goes and kicks the ass <laughs> i do too <laughs> who, are, who are messing with their babies love jeffrey love <laughs> so jeffrey you know, dean morgan I'm never, gonna, never gonna be mad about that
1: Is and anything on that one Nah, nothing at all nothing at all we also have a blu-ray and a digital code combo set of uh impractical jokers the movie which i you know whatever if you're if you're a fan of the whole impractical jokers thing i guess this'll be your sort of thing but uh it's really it's really just extending it to the movies in a way that i didn't find all that engaging Funnier or die has uh th- that's where this originated and it's you know whatever i don't know yeah. you're you, you a fan
2: no uh, <laughs> Die or, or not? That, look, Paul Abdul is walking around the thing. I'm always happy to see Paul Abdul uh, and uh, Joey Fatone from that. I think he was in Sync. He's walking around the thing. But you know, basically these people are just all playing themselves. And I've never been a particularly big fan of any of this. Yeah, part. yeah.
1: All right. Well, uh, Tim, I'm going to wrap out with the, with a few more keynotes, uh, just kind of to finish this off, and then we'll dovetail into the Robert Harris interview. Uh, okay. Not for publication. Another Paul Bartel film. Uh, one of one of Paul Bartel's less known and probably lesser films, but still actually kind of fun. This is from 1984, um, and he has Alan Arkish and uh, Daniel Kramer doing an audio commentary on here. Arkish, of course, going all the way back with Bartel to those exploitation days, is, is qualified to sort of address it. I mean, this is kind of a uh, this is Bartel's. Little riff on the 1930s um, newspaper stuff, like the front page, anything that has a newspaperman doing uh, extensive, you know, research on something, going after the story. Those hard-nosed shoe leather reporters and all that kind of stuff. Um, Nancy, it's you know, it's it's funny and it's kind of cute and it's a little quirky in that Bartel way. Nancy Allen and David McNaughton star. David
2: McNaughton, the Dr. Pepper guy. That's I'm it. Sorry, that's, uh, some people remember him as the American uh, werewolf. Oh, American no, guy. Dr. Pepper. If you're a wee bit older, you remember him as the Dr. I'm pepper I'm a pepper.
0: Guy. You're a pepper. That's it. I love
2: that. uh, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he hates it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Peter
1: Hyams, back when he was uh, not making uh, garbage movies in 1990, he made some really interesting stuff. Narrow Margin is a not-at-all-bad uh, thriller with Gene Hackman and Ann Archer. Uh, very much in the vein of what was being done in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Mario Casar and Andy Vanya, you know, the big producers at the time who did stuff like uh, the Terminator films and and other big movies, they were the producers of this. Um, You know what? Really, uh, Hayams did everything on this. He wrote it, he directed it, he he shot it. Just this is kind of one of the films that helped lead him into uh, 2010. And you can tell why. This is uh, a remake of the original 1952 noir, and it's a very, very good one. In many ways, it's better than the 1952 film. Mm-hmm. Gene Hackman is absolutely riveting as the, uh, the, the DA who's, uh, you know, basically trying to protect uh, this murder witness played by Ann Archer and, uh, you know, these hitmen who are after her. It's, it's, it's really riveting. It really has some incredibly great suspenseful moments. It's worth checking out uh four more here the day these are all uh blu-ray except for one i'll let you know that is val guest made the day the earth caught fire in 1961 really really cool uh film from the british lions films uh independent operation and val guest is mainly known for uh genre films stuff like the Quatermass films and uh you know just kind of you know genre sci-fi stuff this is um, this is a more serious film than most of those because it has a Cold War mindset to it. It's it's sort of a cautionary tale, in a pre Doctor Strangelove pre failsafe way of looking at what happens when the the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, decide to start nuking the world at the same time. And it's really interesting because failsafe and Doctor Strangelove both came out in '64. This predates them by three years. Yeah. Very interesting that a Val Guest genre film would do that. So that's worth checking out. That has an audio commentary from Val Guest, and an audio commentary from uh, film historian Richard Harlan Smith, as well as all the radio and TV spots, which are hysterical, to be honest.
2: Yeah, yeah, slightly sci-fi edge. Into yeah, that, in, in, into that film,
1: they they, they
2: they they they're blowing up these atomic bombs, and it knocks the Earth off of its axis. It's it's uh
1: it's really it's pretty it's a pretty sharp little movie. It, it yeah. you know special effects aren't bad either. Yeah uh carol rice uh directed uh, isadora back in 1968 carol rice of course uh one of the the great directors of that period um vanessa redgrave stars in this along with james fox and uh jason robards who by the way uh is, is, is still looks like jason robards jason robards was like 65 years old his whole career it was really weird <laughs> yeah. he, even when he's young he looks like jason robards he's old so he doesn't age it's weird. Uh, wonderful Maurice Jarre score in this. Uh, just really a beautiful score coming right off of Doctor Zhivago a few years earlier, and um, the uh, the story of Isadora is is quite an interesting one. It
2: is, um, is- Isadora Duncan.
1: Yeah, it it's uh, you know all about her really scandalous life and and uh, the the backstory to it and and you know her her struggles, her romances, everything that sort of was infused in her dance that made her this 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 legendary figure um again a look at the the pain and the and the bliss of the artistic process and a great artist who was never able to sort of reconcile themselves to their art very very interesting and um worth checking out vanessa redgrave very under under understated performance in many respects and uh, as long as we are uh talking about carol rice let's talk about another crazy carol rice movie with vanessa redgrave and david warner morgan a suitable case for treatment completely bonkers movie totally insane from 1966 does not age very well has an audio commentary that will help explain a lot of this courtesy of uh journalist brian reisman but otherwise uh you're gonna watch this movie and you're just gonna go i don't know what this is about this is very very strange it's like uh Someone's obsessed with gorillas, and there's uh, sex and kidnapping. I don't understand. Don't try to understand. This is a totally bananas movie from the mid-1960s. It's designed to be bananas. It's designed to capture all the insanity of the 1960s, and you just got to kind of roll with it. The gorilla thing, just trust me. Just roll with it. Don't try to figure <laughs> it out. And then the last one, it's not on, Div- on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD. Uh, but it's highballin' with Peter Fonda and Jerry Reed back when redneck movies were a thing. <laughs> Nineteen seventy eight. You know, uh Smokey and the Bandit kinda opened the door right before oh, Dukes yeah. of Dukes of Hazard was in the in the mix and, and Jerry Reed was a movie star. I don't know how that ever happened, but it happened for a moment. Yeah. Uh anyway, this is uh You know, Convoy was another one of the films from that period. So anyway, Peter Fonda and uh, Jerry Reed, along with the the wonderful Helen Shaver. Don't know what ever happened to her. What happened to her?
2: Where'd she go? Helen, uh, Helen, Helen, Helen was a fixture through television all through the '90s for sure. But yeah, lately I don't
1: know. Well, anyway, yeah. well, you know, you got you got trucks and motorcycles and guns and rednecks, and uh, <laughs> it, it's it's you kind, know, a sort of all that's really. Don't worry about the rest of it. It's like you know, it's Smokey and the Bandit. It's 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 all that. A lot of great stunts and car stuff, and and you know.
2: Well, there was that period in the, in the night, frankly, all across the 70s, uh, when trucking and truckers and CB radio. That's and, it. BJ and the Bear. Yep, and, uh, there it is. You had you had Clint Eastwood driving around. Moving on. Moving on with Claude Aikens. Moving on. All of that. It was just this thing in, in cinema and in television. Uh, you know, I, the sort of romantic life of truckers. You I don't have that notion anymore.
1: I remember when I got my CB radio for Christmas. I immediately turned that thing on and I was like, Anybody out there? Any smokies? Out there, good out there, good buddy? Ten four, ten twenty? I'm just saying ten anything. I, I was trying to make I I did it as much as everybody else. It was a thing. It was a thing.
2: That was, it absolutely was. It absolutely, yeah. Yeah. That, keep on trucking, baby. Yeah.
1: That was it. All right. So now without further ado, we're gonna we're gonna end the show with uh my little chat with Robert Harris talking about the Columbia four K uh Classics. Boxed set and all things pertaining to it. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you again to Robert Harris for sitting down with us and and taking time out of his busy schedule. Um here it is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Harris.
0: And once again, it is our supreme privilege to welcome to our show the great Robert Harris, uh archivist, producer, uh filmmaker, and scholar of all stripes. And and Robert, uh thank you again for being uh, a guest on this podcast. You, of course, have restored and preserved so many great films. The first, of course, being Lawrence, well, the first in my mind, not the first chronologically, but the first in my mind being uh, Lawrence of Arabia um, before they did the digital number on it. And it is out now again, finally in 4K UHD. And this boxed set, you have some insight into why these six films, which seem like such a hodgepodge, were. All sort of put together on a set. It's Lawrence, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Doctor Strangelove, Gandhi, A League of Their Own, and Jerry Maguire. How in God's name did those Columbia classics wind up together in one boxed set?
3: You you obviously don't see the uh, the the, the read through line here. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to most people. No, what what happened is that uh, Columbia did a poll, as many people did polls, and two of the films came up in the poll, and they included those, and I don't even remember which ones they are. And the other four, um, you know, seemed, seemingly were were obvious, I guess, just because of import, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. Um, do, do we need Mr. Smith in 4K? I'm not sure, only because the, the Blu-ray and the master that Grover Crisp and his people did... A few years back is so gorgeous. Um, I'm not sure how much we gain uh, 4K HDR with Doctor Strangelove, but you know why not? It can't hurt, and the price of this thing is great.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's uh, you can get it on Amazon for just a little over a hundred dollars, and that's rather astonishing <laughs> for six, six 4Ks. Young. Yeah,
3: and a, and a book.
0: And a book, which it's it's beautiful. I did a little unboxing video for our Facebook page, and it's a. Uh, it's a terrific set, and, of course, you get the, the Movies Anywhere uh, codes for all of them. So, uh, you know, you, you, if you, if you want to just stream them, you can do that as well and leave the box. And, uh, as stores. well
3: as the, the steak knives and, and the toast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's, you know, I the first one I took a look at uh, was Gandhi, just because I've been waiting for a good edition of Gandhi for a long time. I've been very disappointed in previous releases, and that's beautiful. I mean, it's really stunning, as oh, that but film? It's it's.
3: it's it's Grover, yeah. You know that's all that you have to know with Columbia stuff. It's got Grover all over it. It's perfect, and
0: it it looks
3: to my eyes
0: uh,
3: as if I'm running a beautiful new 35 millimeter print.
0: Now, talk. I mean, because a lot of these 4Ks, and you're you're very critical of how people do a lot of this transfer work. Um, what's the difference? What makes the difference between a good 4K transfer, what Grover does, and what others might not be doing?
3: Well, the the, the first thing that you need to do is the 4K transfer. Um, If you needed 4K transfer, and you can do a 4K from a camera negative, or an IP, or a fine grain, or a dupe negative, and from a strictly preservation perspective, you want to do 4K of whatever the finest surviving element is, even if it's a print, Uh, just to hold that in the highest possible resolution. But there are a lot of 4Ks that are coming out that are from 4K scans that were scanned in 4K, and we've been doing that since 2007, um, which have previously come out from the same scan as the Blu-ray and DVD, and now they're coming out as 4K, and it it needs a little bit more cleanup, and um, you know if you get into the high dynamic range, you have to tweak those things a little bit, but they're you know they're they're very nice. There are certain films that I don't think really um, fall properly into the 4K arena, and there are quite a few of them, and most films that have come out to date on 4K are not 4K media. Interesting. They're, they're 2K digital, bumped up to 4K, and you know they look fine, and if people have 4K and they're $2 more for the 4K rather than the Blu-ray, great. So, you know, you have them at the highest possible level. But 4K does pop the grain if you have an older film. And, they, you know, they just have a different look to them. Yeah. Um, in, in many cases, I mean, Lawrence, you can see a bit more of the grain, which has kind of a velvety appearance anyway as large format. And then in the other films, the grain tends to pop a little bit more. League of Our Own, which I think looks incredibly beautiful in four K.
0: Yeah, it does. It really does. And that was that was a very colorful, nostalgic film to begin with. It really captured the area area in a very saturated way. So that's uh, uh, the, the the browns and the kind of uh, pastels really really pop nicely on that.
3: Oh, it's it's beautiful film. It's just. And boy, do we miss her as a director.
0: Oh. We do. I uh, we really do. Her uh, she had such a great touch. Um, yeah, I mean, I I love that all six of these films are in the same box set. It's just people are wondering sort of mm, how how did that's a strange party who who sent those invitations out. Um, let's let's get to to Lawrence, which of course is the crown jewel of this thing, and really is the crown jewel in in the Columbia Pictures Oscar pantheon. Um, when you first restored Lawrence, that was—I mean—that was an enormous task. I think we all know about you know having to re-record dialogue, and lost the tracks, and that was an entirely analog restoration. Now that you've done both digital and analog, and and you kind of bridge the gap between those two eras, looking back on it, what what. What are the, the the major differences that people should know about? How has restoration changed between the time that you did Lawrence first and now that we have all these digital tools?
3: Probably the most important, because you can get a
0: uh,
3: a beautiful sixty-five millimeter dupe, be it from Separation Masters, uh, which weren't wonderful on Lawrence, but they're certainly good enough. There's a quite a loss in resolution, where we had camera negative. It's beautiful, but when you are doing things digitally, the major function there is that you can recombine things as original, Uh, although there's still a generation down. But it's the digital cleanup and the stability of the image and the ability to remove flicker, all of those things. There were, in Lawrence, probably the the worst problem that we have, And, and Grover spent a lot of time tackling this were the, uh, these huge chasms going down the middle of the frame in certain shots, mostly in the well sequence, which, if you look at it under a microscope, looked like the, the uh, a desert floor, really. It's totally cracked. And apparently what happened is the camera negative sat too long in the heat mm. and went back to London, was processed, and where the initial prints were all done wet gate it covered some of that and then at some point the negative cupped slightly in the printer and it just cracked the center of the emulsion for shot after shot after shot and we've been seeing that for decades
0: and 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 you're saying that the likely origin of that was right there after they shot those scenes and the negative sat there in the in the hot in the- Jordanian desert fascinating. That's,
3: that's what I heard. That's what Freddie said. I mean, the other interesting attribute of dealing with camera negative is that in a in original print, they were they were actually getting dailies in in, in London, and Sam Spiegel and Ann Coates were going through them. And a, there was a human cry because there were fingerprints on the camera negative that were showing through onto the reduction dailies that they were making. The dailies were actually thirty-five millimeter. And they went to Freddie Young and said, "We want every one of your crew that's going to your physical film fingerprinted, and we're going to find this individual <laughs> so they went through all of that, and they couldn't find them, so they finally went to kodak and in Kodak, Rochester, there was a new individual oh, no. working in the perforating area, <sighs> and as the film was uh moving along. I, I don't know if it was perforating or um or slitting because film is made in, I don't know, forty eight or fifty inch rolls, something like that. They were feeling under because you're doing it in darkness, they were feeling to make sure that the film was actually there and moving. And sure enough, there were this this individual's fingerprints and they probably went up to an executive level at Kodak, and uh, still there, I'm sure.
0: Wow, that's a story.
3: But they were blaming Freddie and his people, hmm. and no, they knew better.
0: Well, uh, how do you it, it, now that you've you've seen it? How do you feel about the way that this uh, 4K looks for Lawrence?
3: I like it better than a 70 millimeter
0: print. Wow.
3: Not not necessarily the the. 4K, because there's additional compression, yeah, and it looks gorgeous on a TV, but I've also projected it on a 37-foot screen on a 4K projector, and it looks beautiful. Is it different than a theatrical DCP? Yes. And the theatrical DCP, I prefer to 70-millimeter uh, projection. There's something there's something different about 70-millimeter projection. It, it's more organic. Yeah. And even without you know cue marks for changeovers um there's something different about it uh the bob and weave of the image, little bits of dirt you know floating yeah. around so it's it's very different, but my preference digital.
0: That's interesting. Um yeah, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely spectacular and it's the, the audio as well is a really if you have a really great sound system you'll you'll just be completely immersed in this thing. Um I I and think the audio of the,
3: was off of a was off of a dupe element. The audio was fantastic. the audio was actually derived from a 4K uh 4K four track mag print master.
0: Hmm. Well, it, they did it, they did a the superb job all around. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful set, and of course, it says Volume One uh, on the box, clearly indicating that there will be more volumes to come. Do you have any? Because oh, there are only two of the twelve, the record twelve, or tied for a record with UA. There are only two of those twelve uh, best picture winners from the uh, that sit in the in the lobby of the Falberg Building uh, here that are on this set. That's Gandhi and Lawrence. So there are ten more. Academy Award best picture winning Columbia films yet to be released. Do you have any thoughts as to what they may release on the next volume, which I'm going to assume is either, you know, later this year or early next year?
3: Probably uh, two or three of those 10.
0: Yeah. All all the King's Men perhaps?
3: You know what? If if I knew, I couldn't say anything. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't okay. Know about it.
0: Well, it is it is a spectacular set. Um, let me then close out just by asking you, what else are you up to at the moment? Is there, uh, is there any great work that people should be expecting to uh, see your name attached to anytime soon?
3: Trying to put together some new films, which, mm-hmm. as you know, is difficult because you do it. Uh, a couple of them uh, oriented toward, I guess, their teen or preteen girls. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a whole lot of material out there for girls. And I wasn't looking for that, but a friend of mine um, wrote a couple of wonderful books, and my assistant and I fell in love with them. And it just kind of took on a life of its own. And um, that's one thing. The other thing that I'm working on is a new version of uh, Gantz's Napoleon. But we have no theaters, we have no orchestras, and we have no audiences.
0: Yeah. So, so the that's... Minor, so obviously... The- the pandemic is, has interfered with that work as well, as well as oh, the rest of the world. Well,
3: we're, we are continuing with digital cleanup, but beyond that, there's absolutely nothing that you can do with it, because in in terms of a strictly business perspective, our break-even um, is better in large theaters than small theaters, Yeah. but our break-even is up around 70% or higher capacity. Yeah. So unless we're really selling out, we're losing money, and we've done that in a lot of situations.
0: Is there, you see, hopefully once the pandemic is kind of out of the way, is there an ETA when people can sort of anticipate that might come to fruition?
3: People have to be willing to sit next to other people. Yeah. That's the problem. And you can't sit for five and a half hours in a mask. It's just
0: uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, good point. I, for one, definitely want to see it, and uh, I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. That is the that is the original widescreen epic.
3: It is. It is. And, and I, I can give you one fun anecdote. He, back in 1979, I guess it was, Abiel Gantz, um came to Telluride with us, and we ran Napoleon there. And on the way back, he stopped in New York and... Uh, Apocalypse Now was a little picture playing at the ZigFest, <laughs> and it was sold out. And Francis got us seats, and um, Abel sat through it with me, and it was very interesting because his take on the on the sound and the widescreen imagery um, was quite interesting. And I think after we left that, we went up to for, for a meeting. But he he was an interesting man to look at something like Apocalypse, because he had his own perspective on things. When we were in Minneapolis a couple of years before, we we ran it at the Walker Center of Indiana. And someone uh, at the Walker got us into the booth, I think it was at the Omnimax in St. Paul, Walked in there, and um, the gentleman in the booth, and I don't his name, very, very sweet, and kind gentleman, was explaining uh, film and widescreen and image size to the man that had basically invented it and wasn't aware of it. Wow. It was kind of like one of those Marshall McLuhan moments. <laughs>
0: well you have you have such a legendary and storied uh career, and um may there be many many more episodes in it uh It's always a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for taking time out of your 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 schedule, which I know is still very busy despite the pandemic. Uh, I would certainly urge all of our listeners to pick this set up. Even though we joke about the, you know, how do these six films wind up together? It's a great set, and they really are beautiful. And uh, everything, everything is just uh, firing on all cylinders. It is the Columbia Classics 4K Ultra HD Collection. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Lawrence of Arabia, Doctor Strange, Love Gandhi, A League of Their Own, and Jerry Maguire. Robert Harris, thank you once again so much for speaking with us. Have a In very, a
3: very sure way.
0: always be have well. a great summer.
3: Take care. Thank you.